Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on another sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. A little later on in today's show we're going to be joined by England FIFA World Cup winner Sir Jeff Hurst. But first and foremost, I have the pleasure of having John Dyer Grimes alongside me, the Managing Director at Dyer Grimes Architect an award-winning architecture and planning practice based right here in London. John, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you very much for inviting me to come on and give a podcast. It's a real pleasure having you with us, John. Thank you ever so much for your time as well. Now, um, the reason we are here is to establish your take on leadership. But before we sort of dive into that, considering that this generation of business leaders is probably going through, I think it's fair to say, one of the greatest challenges of our time, it would be remiss of me not to ask how the COVID-19 situation that's ongoing has affected you and your operations. Well, uh, thank you for asking. Uh, The first thing I think I've got to say is that um, we design beautiful homes for people. We are not on the front line. And, you know, uh, it feels um, uh, shy and retiring to be talking about the challenges that we've had as a business in comparison to some of the life and death situation that's been going on. Um, However, to answer your question, um, in early March, when um, government announcements looked like um, businesses needed to consider the health and safety of their staff utmost, we made a decision that we needed to shut the office and to set everyone up working remotely. Um, We're in a very fortunate position. We've been going for 25 years. And actually, our business is very much an online digital business already. We do a huge amount of um, sales and communication marketing around the world. We have clients around the world. The fact that our offices are based in London um, was more I'm afraid to say out of convenience because um, I live and the staff live relatively close to it, and it's a means for us communicating together. So the first thing was the decision. Let's go set everyone up securely and safely, working from home so that they can be there, protected with their families. A number of the staff, including myself, had to shield. We then immediately got our technology systems in place, and we set up a 9 a.m. meeting, COBRA meeting, we called it, every morning, for two purposes, one, to make sure we had clear communication, but two, the mental health and structure of the staff that was so important to us. Um, so uh, within a couple of weeks, um, phone calls came through to say potentially all of the building sites will begin to close down. In fact, they didn't, and the contractors managed to keep them open, sometimes with a low number of staff safe working all the way through. A number of clients, Um, from around the world phoned up and said, we would like to pause our project because we are very concerned what's going to happen. And so we had to make some radical decisions about what was the essential number of staff we needed to keep operating. We had to make some tough decisions on a number of staff with their agreement to discuss to go on furlough. And we have kept working all the way through. I've been in my office and um, we rotate staff as and when, as long as we can do it safely. And um, throughout the whole process, we've been working and finding new clients to carry on projects. So it's been good that the business has been able to continue to operate in uh, some way, even with the transition to uh, remote working. Would you say that that transition has been quite an easy one, John, or has it been a little bit more challenging than that? 
the, the transition has been remarkably easy. Um, and uh, we've already been working for years with clients based in foreign countries. So we use um, video conferencing. Um, we certainly then invested in the last couple of months in better quality video conferencing. And we're able to create 3D models and drawings in real time on the computer screen. Now, what's been very interesting is most of our clients are incredibly busy people and trying to book a time for them to come into our office for several hours and travel or for us to go to them or organize for them to fly over from abroad has been difficult. We find we get far more attention by people sitting on a Zoom call with a drawing or a design of their home in front of their face actually than sitting across a meeting table. So it's really been quite, quite um, uh, surprising uh, in that way. So do you think that some of the forced working norms of the lockdown period could well become permanent fixtures of the way that business operates in the UK in future? I'm a huge believer and um, being a small business, you have to be constantly able to adapt. And I think resilience is something. I have a brilliant mentor um, and business consultant who helped me set up the business 25 years ago. Very, very wise man. And we made the judgment call in March that things were not really going to start getting moving again until the summer or the autumn. And so this was a holding position, which was to nurture those existing um, clients and people and staff we had through this worrying period, but also to sow the seeds of new people when they are ready, want to get a project going forward. Um, I think we are going to transform the way we work our business. Um, we have big questions about the nature of our premises. All of our staff love remote working um, and the flexibility that that can bring in. And I think also one of the questions that we look at is uh, whether we can attract much higher caliber staff from around the country, in fact, around the world with far more of the remote working. So with regard to um, the pandemic experience that you've had in terms of managing your way through, it seems as if there are a great many positives to take away from what's been sort of a very difficult and a very sensitive time. And business has to certainly look for that, to take advantage of the opportunities that will inevitably be there once we do start to see a little bit more of an upturn. I absolutely agree. And I've been um, amazed um, in very, very difficult circumstances how perhaps by proximity or the amount of time that people are forced to stay at home, um, how all of that frustration is manifesting itself in people contacting us to say, I really would like to do something with my home. Um, so, yes, it seems like, I think, combined with Brexit, which puts a huge dampener mm. on people's enthusiasm for growth, I think the two combined together, in January it looks like we were coming out of the frustrations of Brexit, and then straight into COVID. Um, but I do feel that as long as we can do it safely, which is the top priority, that we can find a new business model going forward um, for the future. When it comes to, of course, managing a crisis, as a leader, of course, the buck stops with you in terms of the responsibility for forming those procedures. But how do you sort of mentally prepare yourself for dealing with a challenge of significant magnitude? Of course, we've had Brexit um, as well, and we know that trade negotiations are roaring on behind the scenes during the COVID pandemic as well. But to go from one huge challenge into 
another one straight away. Preparing yourself for that can often seem very difficult. With hindsight, um, yes, absolutely. I think the question is that um, I set the business up from the kitchen table um, on my own. And therefore, I just put myself in a mindset to say, I set it up 25 years ago. We've been through other recessions. What happens in other recessions? Roll up your sleeves, get out there, and just keep on nudging, keep on looking. My business consultant says, if you have enough crumbs, you can make a loaf. And so what we did is we just made sure we had followed up on every opportunity and that for our existing clients, we could keep them as happy as possible. And so the approach has been, I will carry on regardless, and we will, with the team around us, keep on pushing, keep on pushing until eventually momentum gets back. And we are optimistic that in the new year, things will be back to very similar to where they were before. And we've mentioned a couple of times today that you do have a very fruitful relationship with your business consultant, John. Um, Of course, um, that I can imagine is a huge source of sort of inspiration and direction for you. But what else sort of inspires you in your leadership role, as it were? So um, uh, my wife is uh, a co-founder. And so in a very, very fortunate position that the two of us have combined a lifelong passion um, with our business. So it does envelop every part of life. But that means that I have got two incredibly supportive people around me to uh, go through the um, highs and lows. But the the really important element, and uh, I think it came from my upbringing, my father um, ran a very, very successful architectural practice. And unfortunately, in a recession, the practice uh, went into receivership. So I personally experienced the uncertainty of the loss of a business. And my number one priority all the way through has been saving money for a rainy day to put aside, not to be greedy and to make sure that we had uh, a war chest, a pot of money that if disaster happened. And thank goodness we did. So it's very interesting how experiences in life, if you can learn from them, to make sure that my children and my staff don't have to go through some of the challenges that I went through as I grew up. Experience certainly is one of the greatest teachers, isn't it? And I think it's important to remember that there are learning curves around every single corner. Even when we're leaders in our professions, we're still developing, we're still learning. And Also, it's important to recognise as well that you're never sort of alone, even though it can feel like a very lonely place being at the top of a business. There are others there that you can learn from, be they parents, friends, family, colleagues. And it's good that in your position, you're also planning to sort of share those lessons with others as well. I think sharing is crucial. And one of the um, opportunities that I take is to uh, spend as much time with other business owners and CEOs to realize, certainly in business, that the problems are universal. Whatever particular market you are in, it is still the same challenges. And the biggest challenge is how you steer those people around you to work coherently as a team. That's the biggest challenge that that we find. 
And thinking now about the future, just before we do wrap things up on the programme uh, today, John, we know that we are going to have to adjust to a new way of living and working until we do sort of shake off the shackles of COVID-19. Um, so over that period of time, what is next for you and for the practice? And what do you really hope to achieve during that period? So um, we have been in the fortunate position of staying in contact with um, people from around the world who have been thinking and are interested in uh, developing their homes, doing new projects. They have been pausing it, but I am now witnessing a resurgence of energy and enthusiasm. Um, House sales are increasing rapidly. We're being contacted by clients, and in some cases, sadly, where other architects are now unable to fulfill their obligations. We are getting calls to say, please, can you help out? And I think with our um, new uh, embracing technology and having hit uh, what I would class as some tough challenges, we are going to come out stronger and more enthusiastic and actually realize how lucky we are because of what a close shave we've had. And it galvanizes you, doesn't it? They do say that what doesn't kill you, of course, makes you stronger. I know it's a cliche, but it does ring true. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, again, one of the challenges that I went through as a young architect is that I came out into a recession. There were no jobs. My solution was to get on a ferry, go across to Paris, look through the yellow pages and knock on doors to get a job. Um, I think it is going to be very challenging for the new young generation because they have always come out into employment. So this is the next area of concern, which is how can we nurture and help the new young architectural graduates to come and join our team to get them on the next run. John, I have to say it's been a real, real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme today. It's a shame we're just about out of time because we could discuss these issues long into the evening. I'm absolutely sure of that. Um, but considering it's been so informative having you with us today, I think it would be wonderful if in the next few months at some point we could catch up and have you back on the programme just to see how things are getting on at that point in time. I would be delighted to, and it's been a privilege to be invited. So thank you very much. It's been wonderful having you with us, John. I've thoroughly enjoyed today's discussion. And most importantly as well, do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on. I will do, and yourself. I would reiterate that message to all listening today as well. Please do continue to look after yourselves and others and be sensible with the lifting of restrictions because it does make a real difference in saving lives. Um, Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, During a lucrative professional football career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, but he remains most known for the fact that he was the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup following his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the Old Wembley 54 long years ago. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Jeff and that is of course coming up next. Uh, We're now joined uh, though by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, Thank you very much for coming on today. uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar 
um, uh, do Google me, realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago. 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership, it can't be understated no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over the years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that, that calibre, can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager obviously like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the calibre of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only... Uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident, I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships, and you could almost tell when you walked into the business uh, in a 
many of the car dealerships. You could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, or at West Ham, your uh, plane came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time at maybe overly strict by the time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn for you and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen. So I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, 
only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash just shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Alf showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were a very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but overall they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I... I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about twenty minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. But the, the the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal and I looked round, put my foot on the ball and looked round for a little while and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be it's too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions that absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely. But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want you got time? I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on, go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honour. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. 
And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden I heard a, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses itself, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to come up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. But then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make again, a laugh that if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, but th- there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you, you were a young man when see, this happened, when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of the uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably... Yeah, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah. And, and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with... Um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader. Um, well, a, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to. Their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely, that's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. 
And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson, who's just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, because Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently, since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they. Uh, Ron Green was yeah. Well, the, the answer, straightforward answer, is yes. Um, they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back. Uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate and I wouldn't pick any one player out. I think looking at that's that, so many. yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding and, uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody, and I've been going back from an earlier, earlier question for me, that um, all hard-nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially. And that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers. We, we still got on, our wives got on with, all together all those years later. It didn't just finish after 66. It, that reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the... Um, Getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time, and I wouldn't. And when it, when you put those cat, those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. And there was nobody else; they were all outstanding, and I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was, and I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. It- we had some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, you we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team. Showed. The word is te- the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes you know, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly. Uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-minded, uh, 
single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job, um, thinking about that, that, that role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But it, you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, wait, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you completely focus, you're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.